listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. Coming up, we take a look at the long and contentious history of pornography in the United States. First, it's time for Wisconsin Life. Here's producer Maureen McCollum with a story about bird watching. There's a certain point every spring in Wisconsin when it seems like winter is finally gone for good. We put our heavy coats away for the season, trees and flowers begin to bloom, and as WPR's Bridget Bowden tells us, we begin to hear songbirds welcoming warmer weather. Early May is an exciting time for many Wisconsinites. There's a feeling of optimism in the air, knowing sunnier days are ahead. And it's prime time for bird watchers, like Carrie Hagano, who I met up with at Wyalusing State Park. Uh, this is where the Mississippi River and the Wisconsin Rivers meet, and we're up on what's called the Wisconsin Ridge Campground, so a beautiful bluff overlooking uh, both the Wisconsin and the Mississippi. Hagano works for the Nature Conservancy and is an avid birder. She comes here every year around this time just to catch the migratory songbirds as they make their way north from their winter homes. These birds are migrating from as far as, you know, central South America, so thousands of miles, and they're looking for breeding grounds. So they're, they're singing, they're uh, trying to attract mates, they're looking for food. Uh, this is a great place with all this forest cover to look for food. And, uh, you know, some will stay here and breed, and some are just passing through all the way up to, to the northern parts of Canada. As we stand on the path under the trees, she tells me what she's hearing. Okay, so we got two birds that just chimed in here. Biz, buzz, buzz, buzz. That's our golden-winged warbler. And then we have a black-throated green warbler who's who does like a, he's got a similar buzzy sound, but he's like, zo, zeet, zo, zo, zeet. Birding with Hagano is all about listening. Like 90% of my birding now is like listening <laughs> to what's going on around and then being like, okay, I know what this is. I know what this is. Ooh, I hear a black Bernie and I want to see him because he's gorgeous. Um... And then when you hear something that you're like, I don't know what that is, that's when you kind of seek that out too. But sometimes the birds give you visual clues too. She spots a flash of color high up in the trees. Let's see. I saw kind of where he flew up, but I didn't see where he landed. It's a scarlet tanager, one of Hagano's favorites. So it's a, I'd say robin-sized bird, bright red. And I, I say that like a cardinal is red, and this is like someone flipped the lights on on the cardinal. That's the one, too, that has the song that can sound similar to a robin or a rose-breasted grosbeak, but they do this chick burr, chick burr. And when you hear them do that, you're like, oh, okay, scarlet tanager, gotcha. The scarlet tanager was the first bird that Hagano identified on her own when she first started birding. When she saw it, she added it to what birders call the life list. Uh, a lot of people... When they get into birding, they start keeping that list, right? And it's it's always fun. If you hear somebody say, I got a life bird, it means it's the first time they've ever seen that bird anywhere. After all that excitement, there's a bit of a lull. Hagano says the birds calm down in the heat of the afternoon. But she says that's the nature of birding. You can know right where that bird is, and you just can't get a good look at him. And you can sit there for a long time, and it's just not going to happen. It is. It's a... It's, a game of patience. It's kind of like hide and seek or or a scavenger hunt, right? Um, because you just never know what you might see. While loosing in May might be the prime time and place for birding, but Hagano says anyone, anytime, anywhere can enjoy looking for birds. You know, that birds are one thing that no matter where you are, you can find them. And 
they're going to be different everywhere, but you can go in New York City and find birds, right? Um, or you can come here where it's forested and you're up on a bluff and there are birds. The truth is any time of year at any location, you can go out and look at birds and appreciate birds. WPR's Bridget Bowden brought us that story on birdwatching at Wyalusing State Park. Wisconsin Life is a co-production of Wisconsin Public Radio and PBS Wisconsin in partnership with Wisconsin Humanities. Additional support comes from Lowell and Mary Peterson of Appleton. Find more Wisconsin Life at wisconsinlife.org and on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Maureen McCollum. Now, pornography has a long and complicated history in American society. Our next guest interviewed 90 people on all sides of the pornography debate, and she says it's more complicated than pro-porn versus anti-porn. In her new book, she writes that current debates over the place of pornography in our lives echo controversies all the way back to the 1840s when some of the first anti-obscenity laws were passed. She joins us now to share what she learned from that history and from anti-pornography advocates, pro- and anti-porn feminists, porn addiction counselors, and pornography creators and performers. And you can join the conversation at 800-642-1234. How do you view the role of pornography in American society today? What do you think it says about the ways we think about sexuality in the U.S.? Do you think we need to change the way we regulate it? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Kelsey Burke is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and the author most recently of The Pornography Wars, The Past, Present, and Future of America's Obscene Obsession. Kelsey, welcome to Central Time. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure. You go through the history of, of pornography and obscenity and how we regulate it, and things have changed a lot in some ways, but uh, in a lot of other ways, the debate has remained the same. There's some consistent themes. What has stuck with us over these last 150 plus years. Yeah, I use the analogy of it's like a long marriage where like the details of the arguments might change, but there's these same underlying tensions that keep rising to the surface. So these revolve around what is the role of religion in American society? How do we find regulations when it comes to sexuality and sexual life? Um, the role of free speech um, all have been long um, sites of dispute, um, really, as you say, back to the 19th century when it comes to pornography and sexually explicit material. One of the main things you did to this book, as I mentioned, was interviewing people on various sides, various perspectives on this issue. And I think part of what you're trying to do in this book is to take away from some of the stereotypes we might have of who is anti-porn or who is pro-porn. Can you talk about that a little? That's right. Well, as a qualitative researcher, I spend a lot of time listening to people's stories. And I think when you do that, this is actually something that Larry Flint, who was the producer of Hustler magazine, wrote about Jerry Falwell, who was an anti-porn crusader. Um, he wrote a eulogy when Falwell died. And he said, you know, if you spent something his mother said was if you spend en enough time with people, you'll find something to like about them. And that was actually true of Flint and Falwell. And that was true in my interactions with people across the different sides of the porn debates. And they really disrupted the stereotypes or assumptions that I had about what anti-porn activists would be. So for example, that they're 
all religious. Um, that certainly wasn't true. And also um, broke down stereotypes that I might have had about people who were um, advocating for reform um, within the porn industry. One theme you follow, especially in the modern debate, is over uh, exploitation and harm for people uh, who participate in the pornography industry uh, voluntarily or otherwise. Concern from both ends of the spectrum, but it takes different forms. What kind of arguments did you hear? That's right. Well, so according to anti-porn feminists who have really mobilized um, in the 1970s and 80s, there aren't as many prominent groups today, but they've been saying for a long time that porn harms women, period. So there's not a lot of room for caveats in that anti-porn feminist position. There are women in porn today who call themselves feminist and to say that, yes, there are some problems with the porn industry when it comes to abuse or coercion or exploitation, but that's not everyone's experiences within the porn industry. And rather than throw out the porn industry altogether, we need to do things to make it better and safer for the women within it. So that's where there's a real tension between the anti-porn movement, which tends to see all forms of sex work as fundamentally exploitative, and people within what I call the porn positive movement that see a lot more room for women and other people to be able to participate in the porn industry with agency, independence, autonomy, and on their own terms. You also tackle some absolute statements, uh, some that are opposite of each other. You're just hinting at this uh, in a way. Uh, Statements like, you can't be for porn and be a feminist, and you can't be against porn and be a feminist. How is that shaken out? Yeah, well, I talked to feminists who who came down on different sides of that, that um, for some, you know, the idea is that porn is inherently violent um, towards women. But for other feminists, they say that that actually takes away women's agency who choose to be in the industry. I talked to many sex workers who really um, had other choices in their lives. They weren't engaging in what is sometimes talked about as survival sex work, that they don't have other choices. These were women who had advanced degrees, had other career prospects, and they actually chose a career in sex work or pornography because they found that it offered the greatest flexibility, the greatest income in terms of the time that they put in. They were often caregivers of children or other people. And um, so so they said that they could be feminists and still work work within the industry. I want to take a look at a pair of laws passed a while back. Uh, the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act and the Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act uh, intended uh, intended to avoid exploitation, but with some unintended consequences along the way. What uh, what happened? Yeah, these are laws that were signed by President Trump in 2018. They're often referred to as SESTA-FOSTA, um, referring to the acronym. And when they were originally proposed in Congress, they garnered widespread support because who can't get behind the mission that we want to stop sex trafficking? Uh, That's something that I think we can all agree is wrong, is harmful, that we need to do everything we can to make it an impossibility in the world. The problem is, is that this law had some unintended consequences. So for one, it doesn't do a great job of describing or defining what exactly sex trafficking is. It uses sex trafficking synonymously with the word prostitution. And the fear is for sex workers themselves that laws like this actually make sex work more dangerous because it it 
uh, makes it harder to use the internet um, to navigate um, the sexual economy. So sex workers were no longer able to use certain websites that they often used to um, talk amongst themselves about safe or dangerous dates, for example, um, that that was something that they couldn't do. Uh, internet pornography companies also worried that um, online porn sites be could become the next target of SESTA-FOSTA, even though it seems to only target sex trafficking, that the language is murky enough that any sort of internet content dealing with um, sex or sexuality could be potentially under fire. So a lot of sex workers I spoke to said that they wished that policymakers would consult them, that they were not consulted in the writing the, of these laws that directly um, implicate them and their lives. We're talking to sociologist Kelsey Burke about her new book, The Pornography Wars, The Past, Present, and Future of America's Obscene Obsession. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Where do you draw the line when it comes to defining pornography? What should be allowed or not allowed? Are there things you'd like to see change when it comes to how it's regulated? If so, what and how? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We continue our talk with sociologist Kelsey Burke about her new book, The Pornography Wars, The Past, Present, and Future of America's Obscene Obsession. You can join in with your questions for our guest, your thoughts on pornography and American society. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's bring on a caller now. Kat is with us in Eau Claire. Kat, hi. Hi, how are you guys doing today? Good. What did you want to bring up? Yeah, um, thank you so much uh, for this conversation. I think it's super important that we're talking about. Um, I work at an anti-trafficking agency in Wisconsin um, and uh, in West Central Wisconsin. And so this topic comes up a lot. And I guess uh, my question for you, Kelsey, is just really seeing the effects of pornography playing out and, you know, from a younger age for youth that are really there's not really a lot of age verification um, that is in place. It sounds like, at least from my experience, um, that is preventing kids from finding porn at young ages and how this is really affecting them um, in, you know, sexual dysfunction. Um, so, you know, 12 year olds, young men that are having, you know, physical issues because of it um, that is or directly correlated to it. So I'm wondering, you know, taking the morality out of it, do you see this as a health crisis or do you, you know, is that something that you would say that you agree with? Thanks for the call, yeah, Kat. A, Kelsey, go ahead. Yeah. Great question. Um, so I think that the anti-porn movement has, has really coalesced into um, what has been called an anti-sex trafficking movement more broadly. So not only looking at the pornography industry, but other forms of what the movement calls sexual exploitation. Um, the caller mentioned a few things. First of all, talking about pornography as a health concern that absolutely matches how people within the anti-porn movement talk about porn in the 21st century. So there have been a number of states who have passed resolutions that declare pornography to be a public health crisis and say that it is physically addictive. Um, in 2023, the caller also mentioned age verification. There have been a couple of states, Utah and Texas, that have passed age verification laws requiring pornographic websites to verify that their visitors are over 18. Um, one of the 
critiques of these laws is that it's unclear how to do this without violating users' privacy. So the state has not given a lot of guidance on how to do this um, without collecting um, personal data on website users. Um, there's a, a group within the porn industry called the Free Speech Coalition that just filed a lawsuit against the state of Utah over its age verification laws. Um, and they advocate instead for a sort of device level um, restrictions so that kids don't see porn. This is something that across the debate for those who are porn positive or anti-porn, they agree kids should not be looking at porn. And they also agree that pornography is too often used as sex education in American society and that that's a problem. So that's where I found some somewhat surprising common ground was that um, we really need to do more in terms of sex education in the United States. Thanks for the call, Kat. Penny joins us now in Merrill. Penny, hello. Hi, I guess I'm kind of a follow-up to that first question, and this is addressing, um, in the past, sexuality was not for children, and I'm seeing that, that more a change in society. Um, and, for instance, the UN is looking at policies that would say there is no lower age limit to where children can give consent to sexual activity. And I'm just wondering... What are the detrimental effects to sexualizing our children in library drag queen shows, in schools, sexual education programs, in access to pornography, et cetera? Penny, thanks for the call. I don't know about the U.N. reference she had there, but she's suggesting, uh, and, and this is a, an interesting uh, debate and part of the story, Kelsey. She mentions a drag queen story hour, say, in a library as a sexualizing activity. Uh, there will be a lot of disagreement, I think, about whether that constitutes uh, sexualizing kids or not. How does that fit into uh, this wider story? Yeah, well, I think the point is made that the anti-porn movement is connected to broader conservative efforts, including um bans on drag shows um, and other um, conservative politics. Uh, it, I think that sexuality has long been a contentious place within political debates. And we do know that in the 21st century, people are being exposed to pornographic content at a younger age than they were, say, in decades past. I think probably the best research out there suggests that children and teens shouldn't be looking at porn, especially as their only form of exposure of sexual information. And this is a problem that is recognized by people across the board. It's difficult to have conversations across, quote unquote, the political aisle when conversations about teenagers and children's access to pornography are being conflated with other conservative issues like drag show bans. So a lot of people would say that these things are not related and that to conflate the two makes it difficult to have conversations across the left and the right or across conservatives or progressives. Um, so all that is to say that I think the polarization that is so often talked about is true also in pornography debates, and that's how it gets connected to broader politics. Thanks for the call, Penny. Oh, we just have a few minutes left, Kelsey, and I want to get into concerns about uh, the way the, the parts of the porn industry uh, treat women, obviously, uh, and women of color in particular. You talk about that some in the book and efforts to, I guess, make better porn in a way. Yeah, that's right. So, Commercial mainstream porn has long been criticized for um, 
basically relying on sexism and racism for pornographic films. And so a lot of really negative, damaging, violent stereotypes. At the same time, workers within that industry have always exhibited what, as a sociologist, I might call agency. So ability to find spaces of autonomy and choice, um, though the amount of power they have has always reflected broader social inequality. I'll just bring up one example from a historian who I quote in the book, Marae Miller-Young. She talks about the porn industry in the past. Um, and so, for example, back in the 1930s, she writes about how Black women in sex work almost certainly faced racism and likely abuse and harassment. But that was also true for Black women working in other industry sectors. So domestic labor, one of the only reputable work options for many Black women where sexual assault and rape was almost guaranteed. So Miller Young cautions us to assume that sex work is, is somehow um, worse for Black women than other industries, since racism and sexism are present in all social institutions. So this is something that I heard from a lot of women within the industry, that this is a problem of sexual harassment that is not unique to porn um, and really needs to be reckoned with in in broader society. Kelsey, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thanks so much. That's Kelsey Burke, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She talked to us about her new book. It's called The Pornography Wars, The Past, Present, and Future of America's Obscene Obsession. Coming up tomorrow here on Central Time, Pat Sajak says he's retiring from Wheel of Fortune after a super long run of selling vowels to contestants. Look at that and some of the biggest game shows in all of TV history, and you can share your favorites. You can get us started right now. Email ideas at WPR.org, or you could post on the Ideas Network Facebook page your favorite game show of all time. And if you're a Wheel of Fortune fan, tell us about it. Plus, summer is a great season for giving, getting involved, and volunteering, from uh, run-walk fundraisers to special events for Father's Day, the 4th of July, and more. An expert on philanthropy gives us advice on making a difference in your community. That and more tomorrow here on Central Time. Coming up after the news, the author of a new book tells us how a group of conservative Catholic bishops and wealthy donors are influencing right-wing American politics. I'm Rob Ferret. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Coming up, we hear from the Wisconsin Tavern League about a proposed state law that could change the way alcohol is produced, distributed, and sold here in Wisconsin. First, a new book looks into connections between leadership in the American Catholic Church and far-right politics. More than a fifth of all Americans identify as Catholic, and they turn out for elections more often than many other groups, 75% in 2016. Our next guest says American bishops and wealthy Catholic donors use their power and influence to, quote, insert their version of Catholicism into aspects of law and society that go beyond religion. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have questions about Catholicism's influence on American politics? Are you a Catholic yourself? Does your faith shape your politics? Do your politics match up with official policies of the church? 
Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Mary Jo McConaughey is a journalist and former war correspondent. She's the author of the new book, Playing God, American Catholic Bishops and the Far Right. Mary Jo, welcome to Central Time. Thank you, Rob. I'm really glad to be here. There are a lot of interest groups, of course, in American politics uh, advocating for different changes. What made you want to focus on American Catholic bishops and and major donors uh, who agree with them? Two things. I am a Catholic, a lifelong Catholic, what they call a cradle Catholic. That means you were baptized before you had anything to say about it. And uh, I grew up Catholic. And the other important thing is January 6th. As a war correspondent, I had covered coups. I worked a lot in Latin America. And like everybody else, uh, I knew I was watching the events of January 6th in Washington with horror uh, and trepidation. And I began to see many symbols which had been sacred to me my whole life, the crucifix, images of Jesus, but with a MAGA hat on, and a lot of lip service to Christianity, as if this kind of protest and activity were somehow linked with Christian values. And I just said, whoa, wait a minute, what is going on here? And I began to look at my own church, and that quickly led to my look at the leadership of the Catholic Church. So that's how this book, Playing God, began. One of the main uh, elements of that leadership is uh, is the group of American bishops. And you say, politically, they're very different from, say, the current pope in the Vatican. Can you uh, tell us what you saw when you started looking into the uh, outward political statements and activities of many American bishops? Yes, many of the U.S. bishops are associated with very right-wing individuals or institutions. Now, it goes much farther than that with regard to Pope Francis. From day one, they have dug in their heels as a group, not every single one, but the vast majority, against the stands of Pope Francis, including his very, very important message to the world on the environment. You know, Pope Francis was a scientist before he was a priest. He knows global warming is an element of human behavior. He wrote an extremely important encyclical called Laudato Si about it. Who are the only ones to drag their feet on that? U.S. Catholic bishops. Uh, Many archdioceses do have investments in fossil fuels, by the way, which I talk about. But it goes farther than that. You know, his big, that is the Pope's big effort for his papacy is this upcoming synod on synodality. Now that sounds like Greek. Well, in fact, it is. It all it means is taking the same path. And Pope Francis has kind of put a lot of eggs into this basket of asking Catholics not just bishops, but Catholics at all levels, 
What are their aspirations for the church? How do they see the church? This is an extremely important event that's going to start in October. Well, it's already been going on for two years with uh, discernment and talks among Catholics. And the U.S. bishops have not joined, never, not just the enthusiasm for this, they have not promoted it at all. All of the surveys and the groups of Catholics who have met, uh, who have met have talked about the need to listen to the voices of youth, LGBTQ community, the poor, clergy sex abuse uh, survivors, and, and women. And those are not the priorities of the US Catholic bishops. In fact, often with regard, for instance, to LGBTQ, uh, it, 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 they are as if they were from several centuries ago, and certainly not in the spirit of Pope Francis, who is a pastoral figure, not a doctrinaire figure. I know in polling, rank-and-file Catholics in the United States are, are really all across the board. Some of the most, uh, I, I would say, liberal people in the United States show up uh, among Catholics in polling all the way to some of the most conservative. How do you see the bishops, the current lineup of Catholic bishops, matching the rank and file in the United States politically? With regard to His Holiness the Pope, for instance, some huge numbers, such like 80, 85%, I don't know, it's, it's, it's in the book and things I've been writing, who are in favor of Pope Francis, the personality, the person, the policy, the pastoralism. And that even goes over to uh, non-Catholics, that they're a majority uh, uh, that, that uh, see him positively. How does this affect rank and file Catholics, given that their bishops are often not only not on uh, Pope Francis's wavelength, but often clearly against him. Some 20 of them once signed a, uh, a letter supporting uh, an individual who was calling for Pope Francis to resign, and they've never taken that back. So this, you can imagine, is a cause for confusion, concern among Catholics. Talking to Mary Jo McConaughey, author of the new book, Playing God, American Catholic Bishops and the Far Right. You can join the conversation at 800-642-1234. Mary Jo, you don't just look at bishops, but also uh, very conservative Catholic uh, activists and donors. I want to focus on the role of one person uh, with origins here in Wisconsin, uh, Racine, Wisconsin's own Paul Weyrich, not a household name, unless you're in very conservative circles, in which case he's a, a transformational figure in some ways. Can you share a little bit of his career and how he fits into the story of your book? Yes, well, Paul Weyrich was really uh, present at the birth of the religious right in the 1970s. The uh, Catholic Church after Vatican II, that great moment of reform in the Catholic Church in the 1960s was not quote unquote Catholic enough for Paul Weyrich. And he insisted that 
we, that is the United States, go back to whatever his view was of the vision of the founding fathers, which was a Christian nationalist view. That is very little separation between church and state. Paul Weyrich was probably responsible. This is what Grover Norquist uh, uh, says, who's another great right-wing uh, conservative figure, for some of the most important organizations, a co-founder of the Heritage Foundation, of the uh, Congressional Wednesday Lunch, of many others. I named some of them in uh, the chapter on him. Uh, that uh, gave birth to the right-wing uh, Christian movement. And what importantly Paul Weyrich did was associate abortion as the prime issue for Catholic bishops. In other words, what he did was he realized that he couldn't do it alone and that abortion was not the only issue that was going, or rather it was not the engine that could get everybody involved in returning us to what he believed the founding father's vision was. And so he went down to talk to Jerry Falwell, who was a very important Christian broadcaster. At that time, the Christian broadcasters and many other Christians were warring against Brown versus the Board of Education with their own private schools. They did not want integration. Paul Weirich says to Jerry Falwell, look, we can go back to the world of our founding fathers, but we need the foot soldiers that your people can provide. Segregation is not an attractive issue. Abortion is an important issue. And from there on, he said, we need to be a moral majority and we can do it. Well, the rest is history. That was the beginning of the religious right in the United States. And I should say that with regard to the abortion issue, of course, Pope Francis is against abortion. But unlike the US bishops, he believes that it is not the most important, that is the, the only important pro-life issue, that just as important are capital punishment, euthanasia, care for the poor, the environment, and that is not the stand of the U.S. bishops. Mary Jo McConaughey is a journalist, former war correspondent, and author of the book we're talking about, Playing God, American Catholic Bishops and the Far Right. You can join the conversation at 800-642-1234. Tell us your thoughts on American religious leadership and its role in politics. If you are a current or former Catholic yourself, love to hear your perspective on the role uh, your fellow parishioners uh, play in politics on church leadership in American politics. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our conversation with author Mary Jo McConaughey about her new book, Playing God, American Catholic Bishops and the Far Right. You could join in at 800-642-1234 with your questions about 
American Catholicism, how it fits into politics, your observations, maybe your experiences as a Catholic yourself, 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Mary Jo, one issue that's been another point of contention between bishops here in the U.S. and Pope Francis, communion for politicians who support abortion, affecting, among others, a Catholic president, Joe Biden. Can you talk a little bit about how this issue has played out? Yes. When Biden was elected president, the Catholic bishops proposed among themselves to issue a letter forbidding him communion because of his uh, stand to obey the laws which were then in force, that is Roe versus Wade, even though Biden is a practicing Catholic. Uh, it took a real slapdown uh, from the Vatican to prevent the bishops from doing that. Nevertheless, individual bishops, for instance, the bishop of the place where I live, San Francisco, has forbidden Nancy Pelosi, a lifelong Catholic and uh, important uh, leader, and uh, uh, from going to communion in this archdiocese. Uh, she does. She is. Uh, 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 she does go to Holy Communion in other places, uh, and maybe even here, for all I know. Uh, and Dick Durbin, the um, from Illinois, has also been forbidden communion in his own parish. Uh, this is not the way of Pope Francis. Pope Francis, besides emphasizing that pro-life issues are equally important, said, I have never, this is the Pope speaking, I have never refused the Eucharist to anyone. That is not his way. It's a very important uh, uh, um, event in the life of a Catholic. He has never refused it to anyone. But by hooking themselves to the abortion issue, the bishops have also hooked themselves to the Republican Party for the last 20-some years, 25 years. And that's why one of my concerns about the hegemony of the bishops is that they are a threat to democracy by identifying with what the Republican Party has become. And that, that continues even with the recent overturning of Roe versus Wade. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Tom is with us in Madison. Tom, hi. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I'm kind of looking back at some of the more progressive Catholic uh, churches and elementary schools. I remember George Carlin talking about going to a very progressive school, Catholic school in New York in the 50s. I went to Catholic school in Chicago in the 60s and early 70s, and I distinctly remember uh, having to debate the Vietnam War from both sides in seventh and eighth grade. Now, today, we can't even read a book about it without you know, committing some kind of political fervor. Um, I would like to go back to those days. I'm really tired of the idea where the conservatives have usurped uh, Jesus and the flag. Uh, it's, there's nothing conservative about either one of those. Tom, thanks for the call. Mary Jo, do you see that swing from a more progressive era, at least in part of American Catholicism, uh, until today? 
Absolutely, with regard to the bishops. That is, during the 80s, and I talk about this somewhat extensively, during the 80s, the US bishops were a force for resistance to certain policies of the US government, such as, for instance, uh, 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 allegiance to, uh, or rather support for dictators in Central America. I was covering Central America at the time. I met the bishops who came down there and to see for themselves. And they went home and, and made a joint stand against President Reagan's involvement on the clearly what they believe was the wrong size in Central America. They were against nuclear disarmament in the 80s. The bishops made a very important joint letter about the economy during the 1980s in which they insisted on attention to the poor. This is a time of neoliberalism. And they said, no, wait, you've got to watch out for everybody. It's not just about getting ahead economically. All of that filtered into the schools. And so the kind of teachers we had and programs we had and the kind of things that Tom talks about were, this was the way we were raised. And that's why it is rather a, a shock to the mind when we start looking at what the current bishops stand for. Thanks for that call, Tom. Mary joins us now in Harpers Ferry, Iowa. Mary, hello. Hi, thanks for taking my call. What did you want to ask about? Well, I was just wondering... Um... Oh, uh, we lost our connection with Mary there. Uh, she was asking about uh, societies, uh, fraternities of uh, conservative Catholics in the United States. She had a specific one in mind. I, I guess I didn't get that. Uh, Mary Jo, can you talk about organizations that might unite uh, some of the conservative uh, Catholic groups you're talking about? Yes, they exist. Uh, and I talk about them in my, um, uh, I talk about them in my book. They are not so many, but the ones that do exist, uh, for instance, one of them is called Opus Dei. That's an international, it's not just the United States. And while they are few in number, they are very influential. The Opus Dei Center in Washington, D.C., for instance, is a meeting place of um, fervent Catholics, for instance, Bill Barr, uh, Cipollone, the advisor to President Trump, uh, Kellyanne Conway, uh, and the uh, outgoing president of the United States Conference of Bishops uh, is a member of, uh, uh, of Opus Dei. So they are few in number, but very influential in what they do. By the way, there are also many groups, in fact, they're getting stronger and stronger, partly out of resistance to the uh, bishops, of groups of what you might call liberal Catholics uh, or progressive Catholics or Vatican II Catholics. That is people who are following the principles that were put forth by the Vatican II events. Uh, there are even some 200, and I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it's uh, it's in the book, 280 or so uh, ordained women priests now. Uh, not all Americans, but most of them Americans. 
So just as there are very conservative uh, groups of, uh, of, of Catholics, there are, uh, who are, who kind of punch above their weight with regard to um, uh, their influence, uh, among, you know, laterally among politicians, for instance. There are also other groups uh, of Catholics who are kind of, of rooting for Vatican II principles and are very pro-Francis. What's really concerning about this is that it kind of it, 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 it kind of smacks of a bit of a schism of the, in the Catholic Church, which frankly, nobody, nobody wants. All right, Jill, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you very much. That's journalist Mary Jill McConaughey. She joined us for a look at her new book. It's called Playing God, American Catholic Bishops and the Far Right. Coming up after the news, a lobbyist for the Wisconsin Tavern League joins us for a look at a new bill that would change alcohol regulations in the state, some laws going back nine decades. I'm Rob Ferret. This is Central Time on the Ideas Network.